As we come now before the very Word of God, uh, please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Hosea in chapter 7. We'll be here in Hosea chapter 7, and before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord God, we know that your ways are true and your power is great and that your word will accomplish the purposes for which you've sent it. Lord, even in that confidence, we ask that you would do your will in us in this time. Cause us to hear these things. Give us ears to hear and hearts to believe that we would be shaped by you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take up this morning the entirety of this chapter. There's 16 verses here, which I know is, is a good bit, but we can handle it. Uh, so this is Hosea in uh, chapter 7. We'll catch just the very uh, last little bit of the previous chapter, just because it's part of this, the first sentence here. But Hosea chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. When I restore the fortunes of my people... When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside, but they don't consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, they are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery, they're all adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue, all night their anger smolders, in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers, all their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples, Ephraim is a cake not turned, strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, and yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow, 
Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. Now, the prophet Hosea here continues in the Lord's indictments against the sin of his people, which are sometimes called Israel or Samaria here. The people are often called Ephraim. These indictments are strong words now that over the past several weeks we continue to hear these sorts of things again and again and again. And so I know that it's, it's hard to hear them like this. But it's not always burdensome in these moments. There are bright spots in these indictments. If you were here last week, you know that in the previous chapter, at the very beginning, we heard the Lord's purpose in giving his people all these indictments, that God is bringing healing to us through them that God is raising us up again, that, that we're in through these things to, to be brought to live before him in the very presence of God. And in those verses, we hear the desire of the Lord, which is love. He wants love for us and from us. And the Lord will accomplish his purposes. He says he's as, he's as sure as the rising sun, and so he will produce this steadfast love, which means there is hope woven in through even all these heavy words. That hope, however, does not mean we are to just sit on our hands and wait for something to happen. That for the people here, there is still sin, deep sin entrenched in them that is, that is killing them. And so there's a call at the beginning of chapter 6, the previous chapter, that they would come. Come and return to the Lord, he says. We, we want that. So we're asking the question now today in this chapter, what does a return to the Lord really look like? How? do we return to the Lord? That's where we're headed. Before we get there, however, we need to dig a little bit deeper into the reasons why we need to return to the Lord. The Lord's main focus here in chapter 7 is to describe the situation of Israel or Ephraim with a series of really vibrant images. So, uh, so I, I know this gets a little bit language nerdy, indulge me for just a moment, my, my wordy, nerdy side here. There's a bunch of similes or, or metaphors here. I'll just call them all metaphors just for the sake of ease. And, and you know what metaphors are. These, are. these are comparisons of one thing to another. That one thing is like this or is this. And, and the reason why metaphors are used is to, is to give this really impactful way of getting the point across. So let me give you an example. If one of you comes up to me and says, Nathan, you're a pig. 
please don't do that, okay, unless it's, unless it's warranted, okay, if it's really warranted, I want to know as hard as it may be, but if one of you says, Nathan, you're a pig, after, I, you know, I stun from this, we know what's m probably meant by that. Yes, you don't mean that I'm actually a pink four-legged creature with a curly tail. We know that. It could mean a variety of things depending on the context. So you might mean that I'm a glutton, that during a carry-in dinner or whatever else that I'm overeating or really sloppy like a pig would be. You might mean that I'm just generally sloppy, that somehow my life or my home or my office maybe is, has got the untidiness that a pigsty does. Or you might mean that I am um, in some way morally filthy, uh, that, that I'm speaking or acting in a way that's somehow vulgar or sexist, um, that I'm just wallowing in that sort of mud. So we know what it means, uh, but the use of the, the metaphor is to give emphasis to that understanding. So if you say, Nathan, you're a pig, you could say, Nathan, you're rude. You could say, Nathan, you're messy. But if you say, you're a pig, that conveys the same thing just more. It heightens that communication. So now here in Hosea, we know that the whole book, you know this by now, you could say this back to me, I'm sure. The whole book of Hosea is set inside of one big metaphor, which is that Israel is an adulteress. She is like a wife to the Lord who has left him for others. The Lord could say to Israel, Israel, you've been unfaithful to me. Israel, you've been unloving to me. He does do that sometimes, but the, but the image of an adulteress who not only leaves but chases after other lovers who are not her husband, that carries the real impact of what's happening here so that we get the weight of the sin. That's the whole of the book as, as one giant metaphor. In this chapter in particular, it's littered with a whole bunch of little metaphors that are trying to tell us something. So we don't want to miss the message that the Lord and Hosea is giving us. We want to look in the rest of our, of our time. There are at least five, maybe more, but at least five metaphors or images that the Lord gives of the people. And so we want to see in these five images what we can learn from them. I'll not delay. Let's just jump right in. The first metaphor or image that we see is of a hot oven. A hot oven. That's the longest metaphor in the chapter. It starts in verse 4. They're all adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. Okay, let's unpack this a little bit. We know, of course, that when, when the author here is talking about an oven, he does not mean the shiny GE stove that's sitting next to your kitchen cabinets. This is likely some sort of small, you know, shorter than your knees, maybe even outdoor column of, of mud uh, or, or stone. Uh, that's fueled by coals, and that's how you cook. And, and once this little oven gets heated by those coals, it does not need any more stoking. 
just stays hot. So once the baker, the, the baker uh, fuels the oven, he can go about his other business. He can knead the bread and wait for the leaven to rise. So this fire in the oven reaches a point where it persists on its own. Now, how does that relate to Israel here? That's the way in which their sin has now become it is self-sustaining, barely even needing a nudge to begin. He mentions in reference to the heated oven uh, several sins in particular. He references, let's see, treachery and lust is in here and drunkenness, that in these things there's, there's no real restraint. It's like the oven's already preheated. It is already burning hot, and so, and so it could be ready to cook or to pop at any moment. In fact, the main reference here in relation to the heated oven is talking in comparison to our anger. Where is it? Verse 6. With their hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. If you've ever been camping, I'm sure you know what this is like. You know, the best time to have a fire is at night. It's pretty. You can put marshmallows on it. I like that. And then you just you put the last log on, and you let it burn out, and you go to sleep. And in the morning, there's usually coals still left there. And all it really takes is put a log on it and a little bit of, you know, depending on how many coals are left, it, you know, the, the fire springs back up. Anger is like that. That it's like smoldering coals. Which is the reason why, by the way, in the New Testament, Paul writes to the Ephesians that we should not let our, the sun go down on our anger. And by this, he does not mean that we need to resolve all of our arguments before we go to bed. If you're married, even if you're not married, you know, that is not possible. You know, not, not every conflict solution can be had in just a couple of minutes. It's, it's hard to find some sort of agreement, especially the tireder we get, at least for me, the more angry sometimes I get, and sometimes the best thing is just to get some sleep first and then come back to it. But what, what this means by not letting the sun go down on our anger is that we do not let the anger smolder. Do not leave the coals to burn. It still may be unresolved, but that the coals of anger do not burn or else will end with a hot oven. That's the first image. I'll do these next uh, few relatively quickly. The second one flows out of that first image. The second image here is Israel as an unturned pancake. The text actually technically says cake, but when I read cake, I think of, you know, frosting and birthday cakes and candles and all of those things. Cake in this context means like a flat bread closer to a pancake. It's in verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. He's an unturned pancake. 
So the meaning of this metaphor is a little trickier than the hot oven metaphor, at least for me. You know, it's somehow connected to the intermixing of peoples, but I've thought about this a lot, and, and I still am not confident that I fully understand what that connection is. So instead of telling you something untrue, I'll just you know, leave that aside. What I do know at least that this means is what happens if you leave a pancake, the batter, on a griddle, unturned. Anyone done this? People that have kids or, uh, you know, the phone rings and you get distracted and it just sits there and you forgot that it was even there? What happens when you leave a pancake unturned? One side gets burnt and the other side looks raw. And neither is good. That pancake's done, unless you're really brave, I suppose. You could eat it. Which means that there is a sort of ruin that comes from carelessness. I'll come to that in just a moment. Let me look at the other images first, and then we can tie them together, because I think there are threads here. The third image is that of a graying head. A graying head. Some of you feel personally called out right now. Thus says the Lord, not Nathan. It's at the end of verse 9. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. Now, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with gray hair. In fact, the Bible seems to like gray hair. In the book of Proverbs, it says that gray hair is a crown of glory and the splendor of the old. So there you go. If you've got gray hair, feel proud of it. Feel free to dye it if you wish, as long as you know that it's good to embrace the gray hair that often comes with age. The issue with the graying hair here is not to say that aging itself is bad. If we look closely, he's not just talking about gray hair in general. He says that the gray is sprinkled. In other words, there are streaks of gray hair starting to come in, and specific gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. He's going gray, and he doesn't see it. In other words, in his aging, he is losing some of the former strength or vigor of youth and refuses to see it. Which means here that Israel is like a 60-year-old that still thinks he's 16. And if you know anyone like that, or if you're like that, that's how you can get your back thrown out lifting things that I still think I ought to be able to because I'm a teenager. Or, in, in a, a worst-case scenario, that's how you get killed in battle, thinking you're still some young buck that can do everything the young guys can do. It's a recipe for disaster if we miss or ignore what's happening. That's the third, fourth image. A silly dove. This one, for some reason, makes me chuckle, uh, just the image of it, although uh, the meaning is uh, less humorous. A silly dove, it's in verse 11. 
Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. So the picture here is of a lone little bird, thoughtless and aimless, just going around. Might be pretty, but you know, it's just flitting around over Egypt, swooping down over Assyria, just wandering around to whomever will hold out a little bit of bird seed. A bird that, you know, sees something that looks good, and I'm going to go there without even a second thought. You know, silly doves make for an easy dinner. And before I go on to the last, fifth and last metaphor, let me just point out a common thread now, if you've been following these first four. These first four metaphors together, these images display a running theme, which is of neglect. There's a running theme in these images of neglect, that things are happening in the life of the people of God that just go. They're just left untouched. There's a smoldering oven, we've got a burning cake, we've got graying hair, we've got a flapping bird, and no one seems to be paying attention to any of it. The outcome of this sort of inattention and neglect is really disastrous, he says. You know, it reminds me uh, of, of the, some of the famous words that C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters, that the safest road to hell is the gradual one, a gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turns and without signposts. That's the path that neglect takes. You know, maybe this is true of you, it's certainly true of me. I tend to think of my sin in terms of things that I do. You know, sin, sin are things that I do. When I, sin is when I yell or steal or bow down to idols. You know, that's true, of course, those things are sin, but we often forget that the vast majority of our sin are a product of neglect. The majority of our sins are things that we do not do, that we are lacking in grace toward one another, lacking in generosity, lacking in love, or even maybe just here this morning, lacking in a reverence for God, even in the way that we enter into worship. We do not notice the areas of neglect. The reality is that we do not even see most of our own sin. And as a result of that, as a result of that lack of seeing, we often then hold confused views about God. If we do not see most of our own sin, we will think that God's justice is too harsh, too unfair. It just came out of the blue. And on the flip side, if we do not see most of our sin, we will think of God's mercy as something that's just nice. 
you know, kind of like the, the little extra bonus, a little, a little tip that I say thanks for, that I'm glad for, but I, it's not really a source of life to me that I, that I cling to with my every bit of strength. I will not be stunned by mercy in that context. Be, be amazed that Jesus would give me any mercy at all if I do not see my own sin. What do we do then about this neglect? Let's look at the fifth image. It's in verse 16. The fifth and final uh, metaphor in this chapter is that of a treacherous bow. A treacherous bow. Beginning of verse 16 says this, they return but not upward, they're like a treacherous bow. What does that mean? Bow there, he's talking about, not rainbow, like a bow, bow and arrow, bow, but treacherous, you know? I don't know that that's the best way, at least in this context, to understand this Hebrew word. The Hebrew word that's here translated treacherous has a really wide array of meanings. So when we see that word appearing in the Psalms, it's often translated as deceitful or lying or untrue. But, you know, what does it mean to have a deceitful bow? I'm not sure that that helps me understand what the author's saying here. When, when we see the word in, in Proverbs, however, this same word is translated of a person who is lazy or idle or slack. That makes sense here in this context, that it's slack. So one of the translations of this verse in Hosea describes the, the people as a loose bow. In other words, the strings are, of the bow are not quite tight enough, just a little loose, and that's what causes the bow then to be treacherous. Now, what happens if you try to shoot an arrow from a slack or loose stringed bow. I don't know. I'm asking you guys. I don't shoot bows. Uh, I had to do a little bit of looking into this. First of all, it can be dangerous. It can cause the bow, certain ones, to snap, to splinter. But all, the, main, the main thing is just simply, I think this is evident, whether you use bows or not, that if I do that, the arrow does not go the way it needs to go. I'm trying to shoot a, a, an arrow out of a slack bow. It does not go up and out. It just goes down. <laughs> and that's what's happening here in this verse. He says, verse 16, they return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. In other words, you're returning, but not in the right direction. So, Let's then think about, in this last little wave, what this actually looks like to return but in the wrong direction. The text says here, just a few verses prior in verse 14, that the people are crying out, they're wailing, but upon their beds. They're crying, you wail upon your beds, he says. 
And this is not the sort of response that God wants for the people in in regard to their sin. We might think that that's a good response to our sin, that I'm, I'm supposed to feel sorry for this, right? But sadness does not necessarily mean that there's a real return to God. Sadness does not necessarily mean that there's real repentance. That's a common misunderstanding, even that the dictionary misunderstands. So just by happenstance or providence, uh, this week I get a little word of the day on my phone, boop, from dictionary.com, and they tell me a word of the day. One of the words this week was repentance. And I thought, I'm a preacher. That's an interesting word to me. What does the dictionary say? This is the dictionary's definition of repentance. Repentance, noun, deep sorrow, compunction, or contrition for a past sin or wrongdoing. Compunction. Mm. In other words, what the dictionary says, at least, is that repentance is to feel bad because I did bad. To feel bad because I did bad. And that's not what the Bible teaches about repentance. The clearest, compact area that talks about this in the scriptures in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, just a single verse if you want to look at it with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it's part of a longer discussion about the grief that Paul has caused the Corinthians, but he says this in verse 10 of chapter 7 here, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. Should I read it again real quick? Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there is grief. There is sorrow over sin, but that grief, that sadness, that sense of sorrow over sin is not the same as repentance. Sorrow over sin can lead to repentance, he says, but sorrow can also lead to death in this context. Which means this. Bad feelings about sin, so all the sadness, guilt, maybe even shame, may be good, but if they do not lead to repentance, they will produce deadly things like self-pity, self-indulgence, self-hatred even. That's a worldly sort of grief that will cause us, leave us, wailing on our beds. You may know people like this. You may even do this yourself. To beat yourself up over your sin. Do not get stuck there. The goal is for that grief to move to repentance. Repentance in the Bible means to turn around or to return. So repentance is partly changing what we do, but also changing our direction, changing our trajectory, changing which way the arrow points. And all of this is meant to point us directly to God. 
It's not just do different things. It means point yourself to God. You can hear it in Hosea in verse 14. He says, they don't cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. Do you hear God's desire for you in this? He's saying, I, I want you to cry to me from the heart. Don't just throw yourself down upon your bed and beat yourself up. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have said that. I should have said this. I, sh- I, I. Do you hear all those eyes? That's the wrong trajectory. Cry to me, he says. Cry to me. We hear that exact same call from Jesus. As Jesus is walking around, calling disciples, he doesn't just say, come follow me, although he says that too. He doesn't just say, come follow me, he says, come to me. Point your arrow right at me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me, says Jesus. So at the start, we ask the question, what does a return to the Lord look like? In a very real sense, the answer is pretty uncomplicated. We're just to go directly to God through Jesus. Directly to Jesus. No pit stops, no rabbit trails necessary, no stop signs, no toll booths. We do not need to pause to fix all the things we've neglected at least not yet. Not pause to cool off the heated oven. Not pause to go flip the pancake. Not pause to attend to the gray hairs. Not pause to train the dub to be a little smarter. Not pause even to restring the bow. All of those things are needed, but they will never, never, never happen unless we return to God. That's the work of his spirit in us to return us to him. A true return to God can be as simple as we hear the words from the tax collector in the parable of Jesus. I won't read it all, but you'll recognize it as I say it. Jesus describes a tax collector who returns to God. And in his description, the tax collector bows his head, beats his breast, and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's wailing, but not throwing himself upon his bed. This is a cry to God from the heart. And when we do this, we know that Jesus hears us and will receive us because he is gentle and lowly at heart. Would you pray with me? Mm. 
Lord, would you make these things true of us? String the bow of our heart that we would point directly at you. We know the sin of our neglect is great, but your mercy is greater. God, be merciful to us as sinners. Help us to hear your call and to respond by not uh, not hesitating even a moment, but to come, to receive of your grace, to drink of your life, that you would be our pride and our praise. Lord, work these things in and among us. We ask this for your glory in, in Jesus' name. Amen.